at Boomerangst. This is Ruth. And this is Mike. And today we have a couple of topics. First one is I'm going to talk about the best series you've never heard of. And we're also going to discuss the moon. The moon. In all of its glory. It's a big moon. It's a big subject. Yep. So the best series you've never heard of is called The Durrells. I thought it was called The Durrells, but I was mistaken. It's a British show by ITV. You can buy it on iTunes. Amazon Prime has the first three seasons. There are four seasons, and sadly, the fourth season will be their last. I think I have access to it through my Roku, because oh. my Roku stick has a channel called PBS, and it shows me a lot of this. It doesn't show everything, but it does have it. I looked it up. I mm -hmm. think we looked at it together. Yeah. yeah. This is a series, it's hard to describe because so much of it is in the execution. It's about a mother in England in 1935. Her husband has died. She has four children, all of them eccentric. She looks around one day and realizes that there is no way out of their dreary life in England. They're down to their last sense. And somehow she gets it in her head that the thing to do is to move to the island of Corfu. Is Where, where is it? It's... <laughs> It's in the Mediterranean. Greece, yes, it's Greece. Okay. The performances are just so delightful. Her youngest son is a budding zoologist and picks up every single animal, bird, reptile he can find on the island. She has a, an older son who's a writer, another younger son who is obsessed with firearms, and a daughter who her performance is so wonderful, I can't really begin to describe it, but she is incorrigible in her own strange way. How old are the kids? Kids range from, I would say, the oldest is probably about 21 when, okay. when it starts. So they're not small children. They eke out a living, but they're on this glorious island. And every day they wake up, not in the grim confines of the little town they lived in in England, but in this amazing paradise. It's, it is a paradise. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the last season is only six episodes where the other seasons were eight. I watched two and now I only have four more to go so it's going to be hard to say goodbye to the Durrells. Ah. The title sequences are animated and they're just oh. brilliant so even if you just want to watch right. wonderful title sequences. I love good titles. Oh yeah they are the best so so much for the Durrells. The Durrells well we'll have to yes. catch it. Yes so onward to the moon. The 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. And walking on the, the manned, moon. Manned Landing, yeah. I looked up what the dates were, and the 16th is when the... The eagle landed? No. No, the 16th was when the launch. it launched, and the, the 20th was the date of the first man walking on the moon. Okay. Strong. And today I was reading about the man who was left in the capsule. Oh, yeah. They interviewed him. Yes, it was fascinating because he was more or less happy to be there by himself. He wasn't feeling slighted at all. No. And I think if I heard him, I heard an interview and he said that in the, it, more so then than now, that the astronauts had to be good airplane pilots because they actually had to yes. have the skill to maneuver and actually fly the spacecraft where I think maybe now it's a little more computerized yes. or something. And he seemed very, in a wholesome, nice way, he seemed very proud of the fact that he, and I think Terry Gross or someone asked him, well, how did it feel to be flying that? Were you afraid? He says, 
No, it felt great. You yeah. Know, he was enjoying it because that's what he does. Yeah. That's what he loves to do. It was quite amazing because yeah. he talked about the idea that it was tricky getting yeah. that Eagle capsule back onto the actual... The lunar orbiter. Yeah. One was called the orbiter and one was the lunar Eagle. landing module. Oh, landing module. That they had to really find a way to dock them. They had to come together in right. exactly a precise way. That's right. And he seemed not cavalier about it at all, but very confident. He had a lot of confidence in Neil Armstrong. He said around his neck he had 18 different plan Bs. Really? In case, just in wow. case. And one of them was, what if Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin couldn't get off of the moon. Oh, and he'd have to go back by himself. He'd have to go back by I himself. I heard that part too. Yeah, and he said he would have done it. Yes, he, would have been he was upset, prepared for he it. Was, he, and that they knew it. Yeah. When I heard him interviewed, what I thought was really interesting about him was he spoke very frankly and openly about the tenuousness of the hookup when the yes. landing module had to go back up and pair, yeah. or what's that word, dock, with the orbiter. And he's very, like you said, he was matter of fact. He says, if they were at just the wrong angle, or if they came a few seconds too late, or a few seconds too early, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and they I had mean, fuel to worry about, too. They didn't that's have right. as much fuel because it had taken them longer to find a place to land right. than they had initially thought, and Nassau right. had thought. So he burned a lot of fuel just looking for a place that wasn't full of boulders, right. which was the Sea of Tranquility. Yeah. Such a great name for a oh, yeah. place to land. But uh, no, it was very inspiring to hear him talk. And he's sort of the um, unsung hero. You don't hear much about him. I've never heard his name before. What is his name? Michael Collins. Michael Collins, that's right. I think I remember the name Collins, but maybe I'm just thinking of Tom Collins. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was very inspiring. When that happened in 1969, I was in France, so close to Corfu. <laughs> you were also in France when Nixon resigned. I go to France whenever there's a big event. <laughs> No, I, my parents got divorced in 1969, oh. and I got a bonus prize. My, a trip to France. My bonus prize was they sent me on a study trip with two or three other kids from my school, and we went to first we went to Rome for six days, and then we went to the south of France to Antibes, and then we went to the Paris suburbs to a town called Rambouillet, and. It was when we were in Antibes, in this beautiful beach town in, in France, and they, I remember them hauling out a black and white TV on a big stand and rolling it out into sort of the, an outdoor area, and it was nighttime, and we watched it. We watched it on the TV. Was it in French? In France. I don't even think we had the sound on. I think we were just watching it. Wow. Uh, maybe the sound was on in English. It was very exciting. Yes. And it was it, thrilling, even though I didn't want it to be because I didn't believe that so much money should be spent on exploring yeah. space when so many things Other were... Other things needed tending to. Yes. Uh, it was good for the soul of the country, though. But it was a terrible time in our country, too, with Vietnam raging and everything. Absolute. And it was bittersweet to the rabid Democrats like myself, even at that age, that it was coming to fruition while Nixon was president. Yeah, that and made was it, tough. It kind of took the bloom off the rose. A yeah. little bit, but but it was still such a triumph. It's such a wonderful thing. Did you know 500 million people watched the moon landing? Really? Wow. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the moon. Remember when we saw the documentary, which we just oh, saw yes. a few weeks ago? The Apollo strange 11? Thing, yeah, Apollo 11. What struck us both was how all of NASA was populated by white men with the same haircut and in their shirt sleeves working with pens 
and pads of paper. It was all mail. Yes. I think another, I think I heard someone interviewed also on NPR about this 50th anniversary. I think they it did interview like one woman who was involved on it in some way. Was she one of the computers? I don't, she was not a computer. Okay. She was a person. No, but they called them computers. <laughs> oh, a computer. Yes. I see what you mean. Have you no memory of hidden figures? Yeah, no. Yeah, I don't know what her, what her role was, but I do remember, as you said, in that movie, watching that control room with, it seemed like hundreds of people. Oh, so many And they people. were all white males. Yes. And it, it's just interesting to think, back then that didn't seem to, doesn't seem odd at all. I know. And you know what? We've changed a lot in a short time. Yeah, I think so. It's inspiring. Yeah. I'm wondering if we looked at it today, looked at what NASA was made of today, I'm guessing that there would be an international crew in there. Right. That there would be people who came from all over the world to work at NASA. NASA. <laughs> Am I saying it wrong? Yes. <laughs> You're saying it like the town in yes. um, the Bahamas. Yes. And yet it is called, say it again. NASA. NASA. There you go. It's not NASA. No. I've been to NASA. I've never been to NASA. <laughs> well, I've been to NASA. I feel like that was a time when we really believed that our government could do things, could do big things. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's what Kennedy said. Mm -hmm. We're not doing this because it's easy. We're doing it because it's, it's hard. hard. Yeah, hard. And I don't know that I care to go back there again. I don't know that I care if another man lands on the moon again. I think we have so many issues that require funding Yeah, that to go back would seem a waste in a way. We've been there. There's, It's uninhabitable. I, mean, I heard a scientist interviewed yesterday who was saying that he thinks we need to go to the moon again in preparation for going to Mars. And he thinks we need to go to Mars because he thinks quite seriously that we're going to need to learn how to do colonies on Mars because of life becoming uninhabitable, or at least unsustainable with a number of people here. I don't know if he was a kook. He sounded like a kook, but he had a real pedigree scientifically. He was on faculty at some famous university. So I don't know, maybe the moon thing is not just, oh, whoopee, let's go to the moon. Maybe it's part of a larger idea. I don't know. I, I'm mixed. I, I agree that funds are limited and should be spent where they're really truly needed. But I do think that as humans with imaginations, there's something kind of a fundamental need well, to indulge that in some way or exercise it. India just was going up to the moon. Their flight was canceled at the last moment. Oh, Sounds no. like that is just like JetBlue. Yes. <laughs> so they didn't make it. Mm. And I'm sure that they will try again. Right. And honestly, I can't tell you if it was a manned aircraft. I feel like it wasn't, but I could be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. In any case, to me, if it is an international effort, yes, that's one thing. That's a great point. I don't see a reason for the United States to go it alone. A part of me, you know, I think about primitive man mm -hmm. and what he and she and they would have thought of the moon in the sky and how mysterious that must have been. Mm -hmm. The idea that it grew bigger and sometimes mm -hmm. it was large enough that you would might have felt like if you just went far enough toward it, you could actually mm -hmm. touch it. Mm -hmm. So I believe in the, the mystery of it and I believe right. in the enticing idea of planting a flag there because I have learned recently how hostile uh, an environment it is. It has this sand-like substance that if you breathe it in, can damage your lungs. Wow. So even if we could make it temperate, it still has this substance that would have to be dealt with. Right. 
So that would be prohibitive. Hmm. And if we were going to colonize something, why would the moon be less hospitable than Mars? Since Mars doesn't seem to have, I mean, I know that it's supposed to have water on it. Well, yeah, frozen water or signs that water used to be there. Right. What the mad scientist on NPR said <laughs> was that that we could be or should be, or maybe we are, looking at ways where if you went to Mars, you could do things. It sounds really perverse, but he was serious. He says you could do things that would create an atmosphere around Mars. And with an atmosphere, the temperatures might be regulated some. Right. And that might lead to the water unfreezing or returning or whatever, reappearing in some form. So, I mean, these are crazy way out ideas. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I think he was a legit scientist. He may be on the fringe or not. I don't know. Well, I think that worked in Wally. (laughs) God knows we're not making great inroads in saving our own planet. Right. That's for sure. I guess part of me thinks that we just launch some big old piece of stone up in the atmosphere and colonize that rather than trying to... Oh, create our own planet. Yes. Create your own reality. <laughs> it or sounds reality like, TV I show. think Marianne Williamson had something to say about that. <laughs> before she told Trump we're going to beat him with love. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, but you know, even when we were kids and we had the scientific knowledge, I mean, the culture did, of why the moon appears to get smaller and then larger and all of those things, it, it wasn't as mysterious to us. But even so, like a bright harvest moon or an eclipse. Yes or something like that, sparks wonder yes, in people. Does. I watched the, was it two years ago that we had the solar eclipse across the U.S.? Probably around two years ago. Yeah. And I watched it on at work on my computer, and they they had set up cameras all along the path of the, oh, really? the total eclipse, along the town. Wow. It started in Oregon, and I think it ended in uh-huh. South Carolina. And in every single town where they had a new viewing station with a new camera, I noticed that the sounds of the crowd when the eclipse appeared were identical these ex these cries and yeah. exclamations yeah. of wonder and it really gave me a sense of hope and appreciation for yeah. what it means to be a human being yeah because to be capable of that kind of innocent, overwhelming wonder is a yeah. great thing. Yeah, it is. Know? It is. And I remember hearing a story. It was read by Leo Schreiber, and I wish I could remember who the author was. The story was about a family that used to go to the moon when the moon sank low over the lake. And they would take their little boat to the moon, go up to it, and then climb onto it. And everything was upside down. And it was just, it was such a magical story, and I'm not doing it justice at all. But the idea that we could touch it is still so enticing. Yeah. That that it's fathomable that we could touch the moon. That is still Uh, In a literal sense. Yes. After so many years of wonderment. Yeah. I just don't know that I... I have very mixed feelings about it. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's worth considering proposals and if there were a good reason to pursue it and spend money on it, you know, it could be discussed. I wonder if the world could ever become as compelled by an idea again like that. I mean, maybe it would be a trip to Mars that would be something that could bring nations together, but it's hard to believe. I guess so. That was my question for myself, really. Am I romanticizing what life was like 50 years ago in the U.S. when I look back on this anniversary of the moonwalk. uh, Aren't we all romanticizing it? I mean, isn't that part of the nostalgia of it? Well, I mean, by itself, it was a remarkable event. So, I mean, that makes sense to 
to look back on it with great joy and excitement and all of that. But I'm just, I have, I, I find myself thinking, well, life was simpler then and people were nicer then and society was more civil then. And, um, you know, it's like yes and no, really. Because we had know. terrible racial tensions going on, and we, we had the Vietnam War going on. We did, but we had at least a government that was, in some ways, even though it was all male and all mm-hmm. white, mm-hmm. our government functioned. Well, and the difference between that and now is that even if they were bad players, there was respect for the law. Yes. And even the bad players tried to hide, like Nixon, Yes, when they were not following the law. There was a sense of shame around it, and that seems to be what has fallen away in this age. Yes. is It's, it's shameless now. It, well, there's no consequence, apparently. I can't believe we're having this conversation because 50 years ago, you and I were fairly radical liberal teenagers yes. fighting against the establishment. Exactly. And here we are as boomers in 2019, waxing sadly nostalgic towards a time when the rule of law was paramount and was respected. Well, you did say, and I agree, that we have become conservatives in that we are invested in the institutions that mm-hmm. make up the country. Now, the institutions that were at work before, 50 years ago, were very opaque to us. I mean, certainly at our age, they were opaque to us. But I, I also think that government was not as transparent as it is now. We, we see the sausage getting made. Mm-hmm. There's no mystery to it. And I think that there was some mystery before because, frankly, we didn't have the technology. Right. And we didn't have a, a tweeting president whose every thought yeah. got typed out. Yeah, but it really is a flip because you and I, with our political leanings and worldviews, are at a point where we're looking, and I think a lot of people like us, are looking to preserve certain values that we see as being in danger of eroding and costing us life as a democracy. But back then, we were the ones looking to tear down the norms and tear down the the structure seemed oppressive. But isn't that... It's maybe not the same structure, so maybe that's what makes it different. The structure has changed. The thing was, we didn't understand why we were in Vietnam. Right. And there was no, at least my memory is, there was no real explanation given other than that there was a domino theory and that if Vietnam fell, then Japan was going to fall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything would fall toward communism. Right. The domino The domino effect. effect. Yeah. Yes. So that was nonsensical in a way. It was laughable in mm-hmm, a sense mm-hmm. that people were in this, mired in this mess and it was seemed intractable. And yet all we wanted was for the eyes to come home right and right. for the war to end but it is just it's just interesting how things shift and maybe it's not as maybe it's not a true flip like i'm saying because the people with a liberal outlook right now, we're still fighting against opaqueness, say, in the Mueller situation yes. and the Trump situation where things are being kept from us. So we are still protesting against a hidden motive. Right, because remember the Daniel Ellsberg right. Pentagon Papers. That's right. That was a huge discovery. That's right. And the idea that LBJ and Robert McNamara essentially agreed that they were going to create a war, that the Gulf of Tonkin was going to be sold to the Americans as a Vietnamese aggression to right. American ships. Yeah. And there's a recording of it that's mind-blowing. Did you watch the um, Ken Burns thing on Vietnam? I haven't It's hard to it. watch, but even just watch the first episode, because the thing he made so clear that I never knew was that Ho Chi Minh was presented to you and me yes. through our press 
as a devil. Oh, he was, but he was actually a hero to the Vietnamese. He could have been a hero to yes. us. He was an anti-colonialist. Right. And he wanted to get the French out of Vietnam. Indochina. Yeah. And he looked to the U.S. for help. He looked at, to us because he saw us as a beacon of democracy and fairness. And he reached out to our government to ask for help in throwing the French out of Indochina. And we wouldn't do it. And we turned him towards Russia and China yes. by our indifference and our, our whatever, our fixation on that domino theory. He wanted to be friends with us. Wasn't he educated in the United States? Maybe U.S. or Europe. I don't really remember that part. I think it's he could was. Be. He was very uh, cosmopolitan. cosmopolitan. Yeah. Extremely. But I never knew that he was looking to us because he saw a parallel yeah. between our history of fighting for independence uh -huh. from the British colonialism and their struggle to overcome the European colonialism they were living under. Yeah. And we're the ones who in. said, fuck you. And so out of loyalty we started, to the French? in a way, we started that war. I don't know exactly. I don't know either. It might have been identifying with the Europeans. Yeah. Or it might have been something else. Well, it was probably, there was probably xenophobia in it. I just thought it was so extra tragic. But think of all the people who died. All of that, largely because we could not or would not respond to a distress call from what was basically a fledgling democracy yeah. trying to yeah. establish itself. Yeah. So we turned our back on a people who were going through exactly what we went through to, to start this country. Yes. Yes, it's, it's shocking. Yeah, it's like the hostility now towards immigrants. It's like they're trying to do what right. our grandparents and yes, exactly. further back or not further back did. But now we hate them. We hate them. We don't all hate them. No, we don't. But a lot there's there are people who hate them for doing the American thing. Well, that's xenophobia again. Yeah. It's the other. Yeah. It's the otherness of them. And the fact that when they come to the border, they're dirty Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they've walked for miles and miles. The, the, on the statue wretched. of the wretched refuse of your yes. teeming shores. Yes. It's in our poetry and it's in our national ethos. But I mean, it's like, well, we're here now and that's all we care about. Well, it's because we're here and we're white. Yes. Yeah. Oh, brown people coming across the border is a threat to me and my, what I know is the so-called yes. American way and of life. And they're sold as this throng mm -hmm. of invaders right. and that's what they're characterized as right. are invaders yeah and they are nothing better than animals right really right and then therefore they're in cages yes yeah and this may be the point where we start talking about how much of trump no trump no trump <laughs> no it's okay we're not a trump free zone no not this week anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I'm kind of at a loss for how to characterize what we've been through this week as far as the racism that he's now fulminating. So when he came out after Charlottesville, after Heather Heyer was killed and there were scores of people who were injured by the right. car that drove into the crowd, right. and he said there were fine people on both sides, mm -hmm. that just made my blood run cold. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've ever recovered from that. Mm -hmm. So this kind of racism that he's he's propagating now mm -hmm. is just more of the same. It's uglier, it's dirtier, but it's not different than what he did when he came down the escalator at Trump Tower and started his first drumbeat of racism about the rapists and the gangs that were coming from Mexico. Right. Only now they're not coming from Mexico, they're coming from Guatemala and El Salvador mm -hmm. and Nicaragua. So he, he's 
painting them with a slightly different brush. Mm -hmm. But I, I guess I see it as worse. At the same time, I see it as in keeping with the racism that he has been trying to drum up. He's always he been came. about this. I don't even think it's so much, well, it's part political strategy, right? Because he wants to activate anger in the people that do support him. And he knows that that, that acts as a dog whistle and will do it. Yes. But it's not only that. I think it's really true that he really feels and believes this and he has no filter. So we get to know exactly what he's about. But the downside of that is it activates a certain thirst for violence, frankly. Yes. You know, in a in parts of this society. Very much so. It, it's like talking about his racism is like, it's like, oh, well, except for the racism... He's like norm. Right. He's he's destructive of everything. Yes, it's he's true. destructing the norms. He's destructing institutions. The institutions, the different cabinet, the the departments, Department of yes. Energy. To, by the way, there's a great podcast by Michael Lewis called Against the Rules. Against the Rules. That's great, but I I'm actually off one rung because it's the book he wrote. The fifth element. The fifth risk. Risk. The fifth risk talks about the different departments, energy, agriculture, where they're being picked apart and dis destructed. Yes. Deconstructed and destructed. Yes. He wanted to move all these scientists in the agriculture department to Kansas, and they got 30 days notice. They could either say yes, yes. or they could be fired. And, and one of them has MS and another has cancer. Yeah, and, and even if they didn't, the reason is, oh, well, you're agriculture and we need to have you closer to the people who are doing the farming. But the irony is the percentage of people to farms in Virginia and Maryland is much, much higher than the percentage of people to farms in Missouri. Well, they just don't so, want the scientists to have any say-so. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to get rid of those scientists who actually have credibility. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want credibility. He wants his own opinion to stand. Right. Because he doesn't believe in climate change yeah. as, as far as human. Yeah. It's just destructive on all fronts. He wants to tear down. Yeah. He's just, yeah. he must be damn angry inside somewhere because it's like, he, he just seems Obama. hell bent on destroying. Other than just lamenting it constantly, what is there to do? It's a challenge. Yeah. To respond, yeah. but not to Indulge. let it take, let it overtake us. Well, responding versus engaging. Yes. That's yes. a hard one. That's very right. tricky. Responding is engaging, yeah. unfortunately, well, when it comes to this president. Well. So I don't know what, how do you solve uh, a problem? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I. I'm so, I'm so outraged, but I'm so determined not to let him make me crazy yeah and know? i feel the same way yeah. i i just want us to be able to survive this mm -hmm. and get to the other side whatever that is yeah and and it's it's difficult but it's it's a challenge i i heard someone say that i sort of it resonates for me if i hate him he wins yeah i can't even hate him because if i do i'm giving up well you is know? the alternative pity disdain i don't know I just know that I... I Loving detachment? <laughs> I don't know what you put in that space instead of hate. But. Well, I agree because I know people who every tweet becomes a cause for their blood pressure to go up yeah. and for the wringing of hands. The outrage. Yes. Yeah. That's and the... I can't do that. I, I can't go there. I just right. can't go there because, I mean, I am torn by the worst things that he does. Yeah. But I can't let that get under my skin to the point where I become immobilized by it or my my day is ruined by it. Right. I mean, I think all of our days are ruined for four years at least. Mm -hmm. But within that framework, the ironic thing is that during Obama's time, 
I went through the dissolution of a marriage and divorce. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy with what was going on in, in government. In government. Yeah. But my own life was falling apart. Right. Now I feel like I'm <laughs> back on my feet and right. the government is in yeah. chaos. Yeah. But I think there's no way to win this. I just want to survive it. Yeah. And I want to survive it to the point where when it's over, mm -hmm. I'll be intact. Right. And that the people I know and love will be intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think maybe the thing that we put in the space where the hatred would go is maybe just like an intelligent assessment of the fact that we're dealing with a form of individual and also societal mental illness. Uh-huh. And look at it like a doctor would. Yeah. You know, a doctor wouldn't go, oh, my God, it's cancer. The doctor would go, oh, this looks like cancer. Yeah. Well, there's some things we can do for cancer. And these are some of the treatments we do. But you wouldn't become out, even though cancer is cause for outrage. Yes. The doctor would take a more of a, you'd mentioned it, like a disinterested approach. So maybe we just look at the disease and go, whoa, we have a disease process going on. And we have to start looking at maybe small ways that we can counteract that. You know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think Trump is a cancer. Yeah. That's the thing about cancer is that it is chaotic. Right. That's right. And it's uncontrollable. It's random and arbitrary. That's right. Yes. And, and uncontrollable. That's right. And unfair. Yeah. That actually is a good image for me mm -hmm. when it comes to this. Cool. Because it is a way of assessing it without becoming engaged in it to the point where it is, I mean, I don't have cancer. Our country has cancer. Right. So I can look at it in a different way than if I personally had cancer. Right. I guess that's the difference is I feel like some of my friends feel that they personally have cancer. Well, they're consumed by it and, and I have compassion for that. And I there's times when I have been. I'll tell you one thing that's made me be more detached is learning more and more about how the Russians, I'm really jumping, but <laughs> learning how the Russians did the work they did uh, to infiltrate Facebook and, yeah. and Instagram and all of the social media and to pit us against each other. They were very good. I'm listening to a great podcast called The Report. It's awesome. Oh, okay. By Lawfare. They oh, take Lawfare the Mueller, great. They take oh, the Mueller yes. report. And I they, just heard about this. I meant to yeah, put it on my list. It's brilliant. Okay. Because they don't dramatize it per se, but they expound on it in a very limited way. So their focus is completely limited to the report. Just like Mueller said, you guys should be looking at the report. But they flesh it out enough that it becomes palatable and digestible. And it's like, oh, that's what all those words okay. mean. It's great. But the first episode is the only one that's dropped so far, I think. But they describe in very understandable terms how... The what's it called? The Internet Research Agency. IRA. Uh, yeah, in Russia, they sent pe they eventually sent people actually to the United States. First, it was just done remotely from St. Petersburg, but they studied us. They found out where our main points of disagreement are, where our passions lie right. in terms of things that we would fight for, and that's what they went for. And then they put all of these fake tweets and postings and Facebook messages to inflame. And so it didn't so much create enmity between groups in the U.S. It located where that enmity existed, and it took advantage of it and increased it. Threw kerosene on it. Mm-hmm. And lit a match. Mm-hmm. And so knowing yeah. that makes me less apt to get freaked out about the political situation because I would see myself as a vulnerable hit. That if I get freaked out and I go on Facebook, I, I think anyone should be able to say whatever they want on Facebook. I'm, I'm not saying that. But if I go on Facebook and I say how livid I am about Trump's racist tweets, well, That's I'm going to be I'm going to be prey 
for one yeah. of those bots to come and get me yes. and engage me in a fake discussion. Yes. Yeah, it's you know? fascinating. Yeah. I'm going to have to listen to that. It's fun. I think Rachel Maddow mentioned it. She did. Actually. She yes. did. She played a little a snippet yes. of it. Yeah, yeah. And I forgot to write it down, and I'm glad yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah, the report. Yeah. It's one time I'm ahead of you on podcasts. Oh, my God. I know I'm growing. Well, that's because I spend so much time on my headphones <laughs> editing this thing. I don't have time to listen to podcasts anymore. <laughs> anyway, well. Bye, boomers. Bye. And others. Bye.